This is Mark, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 19, and these are the words that he pens. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat from you or eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it, and they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Two scenes in our text this morning, two movements in the text. Number one, if you're taking notes, would encourage you to do so, is this. Jesus curses a hypocritical tree. Jesus curses a hypocritical tree. Let me draw your attention specifically back to verses 12 through 14. Find them there in your Bible. On the following day, when they, that's Jesus and his disciples, came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. We left off in our text last week with Jesus entering into Jerusalem. Remember, after he had ridden into the city, uh, the crowd likely mellowed out just a little bit. The crowd likely died down just a little bit after the triumphal entry. And then Mark tells us that Jesus, toward the end of the evening, went into the temple, presumably just into the, the outer courts there, and he looked around at everything. As a matter of fact, that's how Mark ended the text last week. I mean, Jesus takes this trip into the temple, he looks around at all that he can see, and then he leaves again for Bethany for the night. But I'll submit to you that this was a very intentional visit. The master of the house, with a keen eye, was inspecting all that was happening in what was supposed to be a place devoted to worship. But because it was already late, Jesus did not deal with the issue that night. Instead, he and his disciples left the temple, they left Jerusalem, they headed back to Bethany, just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem, and the text in front of us this morning picks up the following morning. It's Monday now, Monday morning of the Passion Week, and Jesus and his disciples, they're returning from Bethany, and they stayed the night there, they're heading back to Jerusalem. Matthew tells us that it was morning. Uh, literally the word that Matthew uses in his account here tells us that it was the, the fourth watch of the night, so before 6 a.m. or so in the morning. As Jesus and his disciples were making their way back to Jerusalem, Jesus sees a fig tree off in the distance, but what caught his eye wasn't just the fig tree, it was the fact that the fig tree was in leaf. That's what caught Jesus' eye. The fact that the leaf gave impression and expectation that the tree would also have fruit on it. 
there's the fig tree. The fig tree has leaf on it. So presumably, the fig tree has fruit on it. But this tree had no fruit. Mark tells us that after Jesus saw it, he went to the tree to see if he could find anything on it. But when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Expecting to find fruit, all he found were leaves. It was very normal that small edible buds began to appear on fig trees in March before the leaves did in April. And these small buds, they, they don't taste anything like the good, mature, ripened figs, but locals would still eat these buds prior to them maturing. But this particular tree, Jesus tells us, had no buds on it. It would have been expected, if the leaves were there, that it would at least have the immature buds on it. But it did not. That was not the reality. This tree was barren. The lack of edible fruit indicated that this tree wouldn't even bear fruit later on, even though there were leaves on it right now. And so Jesus becomes angered. He becomes disappointed here. And Jesus curses the tree, as a matter of fact. And Jesus says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And it's important to note that Jesus wasn't just angered by the fact that he was hungry and the tree didn't have fruit on it, but rather because the fig tree was barren. As a matter of fact, there are many uh, commentators uh, who I think uh, wrongly understand, one, the nature, character, and attributes of God, but secondly, misinterpret, woefully misinterpret this text and just see Jesus uh, as, a, as a tyrant here. I mean, Jesus is just kind of going off and he's just kind of taking his anger out on the tree here. Matter of fact, some commentators say that, that, that this isn't even likely uh, of God. So I think it's important that we know that Jesus wasn't just angered by the fact that he was hungry and didn't have something to eat, and so he just kind of flips the fuse here and goes off on the fig tree. Rather, the fig tree was barren. And so Jesus pronounces judgment on the fig tree, again saying, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. But I think there's a question that remains here. If Jesus had the power to curse the tree, which he did, why didn't he use the same power to restore the tree and cause it to bear fruit? Think about that for a second here. If Jesus had the power to curse the fig tree, why didn't he use the same power to restore the tree and cause it to bear fruit? Well, the reason, I'm persuaded, is because Jesus will use the fig tree as an object lesson. Jesus will use this fig tree as an object lesson. The tree is our textbook. Jesus is the teacher. And Jesus, by means of this one tree, will demonstrate for us our fundamental human problem. Jesus will use this tree to teach us, as though it were a living parable, a lesson about the danger of unfruitfulness in our lives. In the Old Testament, the, the vine and the fig tree were often used symbols of the nation of Israel. God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah said this, When I would gather them, speaking about Israel, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the tree. Even the leaves themselves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. Likewise, through the prophet Hosea, God said this, 
Like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel, like the first fruit on the tree and its first season I saw your fathers, but then they came to Baal, Peor, and consecrated themselves to things of shame, and they became detestable, like the very thing that they loved. And so you see this, this, this imagery being used of the nation of Israel, that of a vine and grapes and that of a tree that bears figs. Just like the fig tree that Jesus curses in our text, Israel had leaves, but she had no fruit. She had all the trappings of, of religious look without any of the internal goods. Israel's outward display of religious vitality was impressive, but like the leaves on the tree, it bore no spiritual fruit of righteousness. And so here's the question I have for us this morning. Do we bear fruit? More specifically, do you bear fruit? Is your life bearing fruit? We have been called to bear fruit. As a matter of fact, Jesus said this in John 15, 16. He said, For you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that would last or fruit that should abide. We don't want to be like Israel who had signs of outward religion but lacks spiritual fruit. Friends, Jesus hates profession without practice. Mark it down. Take it to the bank. Jesus hates profession without practice. Jesus despises songs on our lips without surrender in our lives. Jesus detests outward actions without inward affection. Do we bear fruit? Friends, leaves without fruit only add to condemnation. Like the fig leaves from which Adam and Eve made themselves garments, they will not hide the nakedness of our souls before an all-seeing God. Neither will they give us a platform from which to argue when we stand before him on the last day. We must bear fruit if we wish to not bear condemnation. There must be fruit in our lives. There must be fruit in our hearts. And so you ask, well, what are these fruits? Well, at the very foundation of it all, there must be the fruit of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The fruit of repentance and faith. And then the tree begins to sprout buds of, of other fruit, other Christ-like fruit. Joy, peace, patience, kindness. The fruit of a humble and submissive spirit. The fruit of obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's the fruit of obedience. You see, fruit is always the evidence of genuine salvation. Let me rewind that statement. It's massively important. Fruit is always the evidence of genuine salvation. When a person is saved by God's grace, they will, without exception, bear fruit for his glory. There is no such thing, none, as a fruitless Christian. That concept does not exist. It is foreign to the Bible. There is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. The fruit on the vine is evidence of life within the branch. 
as the branch yields to the vine and the vine lives through the branch, fruit is the result. Not everybody bears the same amount of fruit. We can clearly say that. Not everyone bears the same amount of fruit, but everyone who is saved bears fruit. I would even submit to you that everyone's life bears some sort of fruit. There's good fruit, God-honoring, pleasing to Jesus Christ fruit, and then there is fruit that is detestable to God. But every life in some way, saved or lost, bears some sort of fruit, but only those in a right relationship with God bear His fruit. When we're all leaf and no fruit, we're living a life of spiritual hypocrisy. When we're living a life that is all leaf and no fruit, we're living in spiritual hypocrisy. And so I'd ask you this question, if Jesus were to return today, how much fruit would he see in your life? It's a challenging question. How much fruit would he see in my life? I pray that he would be pleased by what he sees. Number one, Jesus curses a hypocritical tree. Write this down if you're taking notes. Number two, Jesus clears a hollow temple. Jesus clears a hollow temple. Direct your attention back to your Bible there. Look specifically at verses 15 through 19. Mark writes, and they came to Jerusalem. Jesus on his way from Bethany to Jerusalem has passed the fig tree. It has all the, all the leafy show, but without any fruit. Jesus curses the tree, and now he continues the short journey on into Jerusalem. Mark tells us that he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and those seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, as he was often doing, saying... Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you, you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Why? Because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. It's not the first time we've seen that, right? The crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Jesus is now entering the temple for the second time. Remember, he, he did yesterday, yesterday evening, uh, after the triumphal entry. Jesus entered the temple. Things were probably winding down in the temple, and so it is now daybreak the following day. Things are, are likely beginning to churn in the temple. The, the hustle bustle of all that goes on is beginning to, to move into motion here. I think that's why Jesus came back into the temple at this time when the temple would be in full swing, when, when all the activities of the temple would be in full swing. Now, there are two closely connected words used in the New Testament for temple, the word temple. Mark uses the word here that is more general in nature. It just means sacred place, a sacred place. Jesus entered the sacred place. The temple area sat on top of Mount Zion, and it covered some 30 acres. It was massive. It was incredibly expansive. The temple was surrounded by great walls, which, which were uh, 1,300 feet on, on some sides, uh, almost 1,000 feet on other sides. There was a wider outer space there in the temple that was called the Court of the Gentiles. And in the Court of Gentiles, anyone could come, whether Jew or Gentile. All were welcome in the Court of Gentiles. 
But at the inner edge of the court of Gentiles, there was a, a, a small wall about waist height or so uh, that stated if a Gentile passes this point, it comes with penalty of death. So if you were a Gentile, you, you could be in the court of Gentiles, the, the outer court of the temple, but there was a, a wall, there was a line drawn where which you could not pass without penalty of death. Now, the next court in was called the court of women. It was called this because unless a woman had come to actually offer sacrifice, she could not proceed any farther than this. Next was the court of the Israelites. This is where the congregation gathered on, on great occasions. And from the court of Israelites, offerings were handed by the worshipers to the priests. And the inmost court was the court of priests. This is where the priests took the sacrifice in before the Lord. And so presumably where Jesus is here, just to give you an idea, is, is he is in the exterior or the, the outer area of the temple here, the court of Gentiles. This wasn't the first time that Jesus had uh, turned over tables in the temple, I'm persuaded at least. Uh, some commentators think that, uh, that John's account of, of Jesus turning over uh, tables in John chapter 2 is the exact same instance. I'm persuaded that these are two separate instances. I'm persuaded that they are more like bookends of Jesus' ministry. Jesus went in and he cleaned house on the front end of his ministry. And Jesus is coming in cleaning house right before his death. Had you walked in the temple, you would have seen something that looked almost like a religious bazaar. Mark tells us that Jesus began to drive out those who sold and bought in the temple. The word translated drive out is ekbalo literally means to eject by force, to forcefully expel. There are four corrupt practices that, that Jesus absolutely shuts down in the temple this morning. If you look there at your Bible beginning in verse 15 and moving on into verse 16, first Jesus drove out those who bought and sold in the temple. What had happened here? Well, the temple, which should have been set apart for the worship of God had now become commercialized. The people had commercialized God's house of worship. The temple had become something akin, again, to a bazaar. People set up shops selling their wares. I mean, it was a concophony of sounds and sights and smells, as we'll see here. Jesus drives out those, ekbalo, those who sold and those who bought in the temple, began to shut them down systematically. Secondly, Jesus begins to overturn the tables of the money changers. What's going on here? What's going on here? Well, again, it's Passover time, right? And you had hundreds of thousands of individuals, pilgrims, travelers, those on journey to Jerusalem for the Passover. And it was required that coming into the temple, they would pay a temple tax. But Greek and Roman money that bore the image of various external deities were not allowed to be used for the required temple tax. And so conveniently, a money exchange business found its way in the temple. What may have originally started uh, as a service and a convenience had been uh, taken and it had crossed the line 
into a profiteering enterprise. Some Jewish historians indicated that, that there was as much a, as a 25% markup on the exchange of money in the temple. And so Jesus comes in and he sees this extortion. This isn't serving anybody. You're taking advantage of people. You're taking advantage of them as they come to worship. And so as you can imagine, for the money changers to have their tables overturned and their money scattered all over the temple floor on the, on the, the, the eve of the Passover, very close to the Passover there, would have dealt a very serious blow to their business at a time when money traffic was at its height. Jesus overturns the tables of the money changers. The third, Jesus overturned the seed of those selling doves or pigeons. I mean, think about this for a minute here. People who came to Jerusalem from a great distance would have found it very difficult to carry with them animals to sacrifice. And so conveniently, a stockyard of animals, including pigeons, was made available for purchase. But just like the money changing became a profiteering enterprise, so did the sale of animals for sacrifice. Some just found it inconvenient to, to travel such a distance with an animal, but what began to happen is that those in the temple selling animals for sacrifice, well, first of all, the animal had to be approved of. Had to be approved of before it was allowed to be sacrificed. And so what began to happen is those who were in the business of approving animals would certainly find a spot or a blemish or an effect with what you brought. And so it was better, you were better off just to leave your, your sacrifice at home because everybody knew that something was probably going to be found wrong with your sacrifice. So better to just buy it there at an exorbitant price. This reminds me of buying food at the ballpark, right? Like, you can bring your own food in, that's okay. Uh, sometimes, with, with all kinds of exceptions and limitations, you know, you can bring your bottle of water in, but you can't have cracked the seal on it. I mean, just, you know, you can, you can bring your own food in, uh, you know, but, but you can't bring the big stuff in. I mean, like you, can't, you, can't have, you can't bring your own dinner into the, to the ballpark, but that's fine. They got you covered, right? They've absolutely got you covered. You'll just have to take out a second mortgage to score a round of hot dogs for your family. And, uh, you know, that's... that's uh, just to, just to kind of help you understand what's going on here in the text. And then fourthly, Jesus disallowed anyone from carrying anything through the temple. The word translated anything, skuos, it refers to any household item, any kind of domestic gear. Uh, basically anything that you would have in hand. And this was actually a forbidden practice on paper. Uh, to, to just kind of use the temple as a cut-through uh, to other places, but that's exactly what had begun to happen. People commonly made the temple a shortcut between the city and the Mount of Olives. And so you ask yourself, well, what's the big deal here? Well, the big deal is that the temple was a sacred place, not a footpath for convenience. But that's what it had become. Pe people were disregarding the fact that this was a place set aside for the worship of God and they just kind of used it as a cut through from A to B. The temple had become like the, the, the county fair and the stock exchange all under one roof. 
And just like the fig tree that was full of leaves, the temple was heavy with the smoke of sacrifices, and their priests were busy presenting their prayers and carrying out their duties. But external ritual wasn't what God was looking for. Men's hearts were far from God. Women's hearts were far from God. Just as the fig tree bore no fruit, so also in spite of all the religious activity in Jerusalem's temple, all the hustle bustle was an abomination to God and displeasing. The smell of the sacrifices were displeasing to his nostrils. The temple, the temple was all leaf and no fruit. You see here how Jesus uses the textbook of the tree to paint the picture of the reality of what's going on in the hearts of people, specifically in the temple. But on this particular day, Jesus not only stopped the sales, but he stopped the sacrifices. Because if there, if there aren't animals being sold, then there aren't animals to be sacrificed. This is highly symbolic because in just a few days, Jesus would become the final sacrifice for sin. Rendering all of their sacrifices completely useless. Later, the temple would be destroyed because Jesus was going to become the meeting place between people and God where sins would be dealt with once and for all. It's interesting to note a progression that takes place in Matthew's gospel. For the sake of time, I just give me your ears. Don't turn there. But I just mentioned the temple would soon be destroyed. And we actually talked about that uh, briefly at the end of our message last week as Jesus stood over Jerusalem and, and, and uh, prophetically saw and, sp and spoke of uh, Jerusalem just smoldering in a heap of rubble. Well, the temple was going to be destroyed as well. And it's interesting to note a progression, as I mentioned, in Matthew's gospel concerning the temple. Matthew chapter 21, 13. Maybe you just want to jot the reference down. You can go back and look at it later. Matthew 21, 13. Jesus said, it is written, my house. That's what I want you to get. Jesus said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Jesus begins in uh, Matthew 21 speaking about his house. And then just a couple of chapters later in Matthew 23, Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 and 38, Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, these are probably familiar words, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, and here's the language, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus in Matthew 21 speaks of his house. Jesus in Matthew 23 speaks of your house. And then listen to the words that Jesus uses in Matthew 24, just one chapter later. Jesus left the temple and was going away, and his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he, Jesus, answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be one stone left here upon another that will not be torn down. Here's the progression. Jesus notes my house in Matthew 21. Jesus notes your house in Matthew 23. And then Jesus notes no house in Matthew 24. My house has become your house. You've treated it like your house. And so there will be no house. 
I will be the house. I will be the house. I will become the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. I will be the meeting place where God and man will come together. The purpose of the temple is highly important here, which I, I think is, is a lot of what enrages Jesus. The temple was, was the place where the glory of God should reside. The temple was the place where sinful men could come and commune with a holy God. The temple was to be a place that was set aside for reverence and devotion and prayer and communion with God. The temple was to be a place where both Jew and Gentile could be able to respond to God's revelation and invitation to repent and believe and have your sins forgiven. But it had become something else. It had become just the stockyard and the stock exchange. Mark notes in verse 17, look at your Bible there. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And you can imagine with all the commotion here, Jesus comes and he's, he's shutting down shops and he's turning over tables and he's turning over seats. You can imagine that all this commotion in the temple has attracted the attention of many, many onlookers. And so Jesus uses this opportunity where all eyes are on him to teach, to teach. And what Jesus does here is he quotes a couple of Old Testament texts. You can write this down in the, the margin there. Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, verse 7. And then he quotes Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. First, he quotes Isaiah 56, 7. The prophet Isaiah says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Jesus quotes in a, in a summary fashion the words of Isaiah 56, verse 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Now, here's an interesting thing to note. Where Jesus did the turning over of tables and the turning over of seats and the shutting down of those who were buying and selling took place, as I mentioned, in the court of Gentiles. This is where the Gentiles were able to come and were able to see something of Israel's God, of Yahweh, the one true God. But what they were seeing were, were despicable practices. And so the very place that Gentiles, non-Jews, could come to be exposed to God and to offer worship to Him was corrupt. It was corrupt. Jesus says that His house is to be a, a house of prayer for all peoples. For all peoples. Yes, Israel was the set-aside, special, particular people of God. But God's heart has always been for the nations. As a matter of fact, God told Israel that he did not save Israel for himself, but that she might be a light, a conduit for all nations, a conduit of the grace of God, the mercy of God to the surrounding nations. But we see Israel fail to do that over and over and over again. 
And so the very place that the, that the Gentiles were, were enabled to come had become a detestable, had become nothing but a, but a, a hypocrisy, a spiritual hypocrisy. Jesus goes on and he says here, he says, but you've made it a den of robbers, says Jeremiah 7.11. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all peoples, but you've made it a den of robbers. And Jesus uses a vivid metaphor here to describe the temple court. Remember, we talked about the Jericho Road over the last uh, several Sundays. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notorious for its robbers and thieves, Matter of fact, Jesus opened the parable of the Good Samaritan, probably familiar to all of us. The parable of the Good Samaritan, saying, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho on the Jericho Road, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The Jericho Road was notorious for, well known for, its robbers and thieves. The Jericho Road was, was a narrow, winding road, and it, it passed through, through rocky crevices, and amidst the rocks were caves where the thieves would lie in wait for an unsuspecting passerby. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's saying the temple has become worse, the temple has become a house that, that houses thieves worse than those who are in the caves on the Jericho Road. My house has become a den of thieves. Jesus says. All this commotion in Jesus' teaching leads to a plot to destroy him. Look at verse 18. Mark writes, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it, heard Jesus' teaching, heard all the commotion, probably saw it as well. And they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. You know, Mark has noted earlier uh, in his gospel that the Pharisees and the Herodians, those were sympathizers of King Herod, the Herodians. The Pharisees and the Herodians wanted to to destroy Jesus. Uh, Matthew tells us the Sadducees joined forces with their arch enemies, the Pharisees, in in, in opposing Jesus. John tells us of the settled resolve of the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish court that wanted to put Jesus to death. And so the question, again, we must ask is, why? Why did the religious leaders want to destroy Jesus? Well, Mark tells us here, they wanted to destroy him because they were afraid of him. They were afraid of him. Why? Because Jesus exposed their hypocrisy. Jesus exposed them as a hypocritical fig tree that leaps but has no fruit. Jesus exposes the hollow barrenness of the temple, which should have been set aside as a place devoted to worship, to the honor, to the glory, to the extolling, to the magnifying of our one true God. But it had become the stockyard and the stock exchange. Jesus exposed their hypocrisy Jesus was a threat to their popularity. All of Jesus' miracles shined light on him. It cast attention on him. This infuriated the religious leaders. Jesus was a threat to their popularity. 
Jesus' teaching was also said to be so much more profound than theirs. Remember, who is this man that teaches with authority that even the wind and waves obey him? And again, even in our text this morning, Jesus' teaching and his authority is what astounds the people. Jesus was a threat to the religious leader's popularity, but secondly, Jesus was a threat to the religious leader's pocketbook. Not just to their popularity, but also to their pocketbook. I mean, they had allowed quite a thriving business to operate within the temple courts. And Jesus comes in and shuts it down. Shuts it down. From the outside looking in, everything looks wonderful, but under the table, that which is despisable, despicable, and dishonoring to the Lord is taking place. Let me, let me try to wrap this up just a little bit in a few words of conclusion for us here this morning and apply it to our own lives and our own hearts. Friends, do we seek to cover ourselves with showy religious leaves? Do we seek to flee to church on Sundays in an attempt to merely conceal our sin? Is it all a show? Is it all leaf but no fruit? Is it all external with no heart? Is it all on the lips without any internal affection? These people praise me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. If Jesus stood before the fig tree of your life and my life today, would he be satisfied with the fruit that he found? If Jesus, likewise, walked into the courts of your temple, your heart, this very day, would the aroma be pleasing to him? Would it fill his nostrils and be a pleasing aroma or would he begin to turn over the tables of our idols? What would he find? What would he see? Each of us, without exception, are hypocrites and sinners. Can we agree to that? Every single one of us, young to old, we're hypocrites and sinners. We have all offended God. We have all indulged in our sin. And we have tried to hide our barrenness with showy leaves. But this isn't possible. Like Adam and his bride in the garden, God's omniscient eyes see through our futile attempts to cover ourselves. But friends, there is great news. There is great news. Upon the blood-drenched cross of Calvary, God provides for our barrenness. And he provides for our barrenness by crushing his son, the ultimate sacrifice in our place. If we will run to Jesus, if we will surrender our wayward and withered heart to him, he will cause us by means of his own life to bring forth the fruit of repentance and obedience. It was Jesus himself that said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Jesus died that he might water your dry tree with his own blood that its fruit might flourish. What would Jesus find if he stood before your fig tree and entered the temple of your heart this very day? Friends, I pray that it would be pleasing to him. The fruit would be pleasing. The aroma there in the temple courts would be pleasing to him. But we have an advocate with the Father who stands in our stead as guilty sinners and who paid our sin penalty on Calvary cross, Calvary's cross. You come to a place of repentance and faith. Do you know this Jesus by repentance and faith? You can be saved this very day by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And friends, if you're here this morning and you know Jesus savingly, uh, and there is some heart work that needs to be done in your heart, and I would submit that there is in all of our hearts, allow Jesus to expose it. Don't conceal it. To be exposed is a good thing, that we might deal with it, that we might repent of our sins, that we might repent of those idols that reside in the recesses of our hearts and that we might be a pleasing aroma to him. Cast yourself upon the matchless mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this fig tree that stood on the path somewhere between Bethany and Jerusalem. Lord, we thank you for the lesson that it that it teaches us this morning. This fig tree speaks. And it teaches us much if we will listen. Father, I pray that as your eye scans this room, that it would stop. Lord, I pray that you would find much fruit here that is pleasing to you, that's honoring to you, that magnifies your great name, that ascribes to you the glory that your great name is worth and is due. Lord, I pray that as you walk through the courts of the temple of our hearts, that the aroma that lofts forth there would be pleasing to you. Father, I pray for any person here this morning who does not know Jesus savingly, that you would bring them to a place of repentance and faith. Lord, I pray that they would turn from their vain striving, that they would turn from their own trying to attain, and cast themselves upon the matchless mercy of the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, and receive a new life, become a new creation. Father, help us to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Help us to obey you and evidence of our love for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.